Thank you for listening to audio from Glen Meadows Baptist Church. We hope it blesses you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are not a current member of Glen Meadows, we encourage you to visit one of our services, Sundays at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We are continuing our series, which is in uh, what we believe. So we're talking about what we believe, and we've started with what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God, what we believe about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, human nature, salvation, the return of Christ. We've discussed many of these items, and today we are going to be talking about what we believe about evangelism and missions. And this being Focus Sunday, we are to, all of us, gather our attention and our sight and our vision about the purpose of the church. Not what we decide is the purpose of the church, but what God gives us as the purpose of the church. We don't decide that. We already have a mission. It's called the Great Commission. And we are to go into the whole world, uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into all nations or all ethnics. And it is an incredible calling. And as we look at this, we have uh, an incredible opportunity for us as a church to... uh, to be in alignment. You may be here, you may have been coming for a while, and you've never really engaged. You've never pushed the clutch in, thrown it into gear, let the clutch out, hit the gas, and move on with the body of Christ in a strategy, in programs that we together lock arms hand in hand, and then in, in same mind, same direction, so that we are accomplishing something for the Lord. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we will read this passage. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No One lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good deeds, your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In 1991, a yet-to-be-identified man uh, went to a flea market. Anybody ever go to flea markets? I bet more than... Just raised your hand, actually go to flea markets. You didn't want to admit it. I was remember being raised, waking up in the back seat of a car on Saturday morning of a station wagon with some little powdered donuts and milk and my mom beating on doors trying to get into garage sales. Found a lot of great things in those days. Still have some of those things in these days. In fact, no lie, my uncle got his wife at a garage sale. That's what happened. <laughs> they met at a garage sale and they got married. There's some good things there. So in 1991... <laughs> A yet-to-be-identified man who went to a flea market purchased a picture to his liking, liked the frame, liked the picture. He gets home and under further inspection realizes there is another document behind the picture. It was an old document. He didn't know what to do with it, so he just laid it aside. Two years later, another friend comes by, looks at the document, does some investigation, and realizes that it is a first edition copy of the Declaration of Independence worth north of a million dollars. Didn't even know it. Had it right there in his house, a million dollars behind an old picture. Didn't even know it. Stories like this intrigue me, and therefore I'll tell you another one. (laughs) 
There was a contractor doing a remodel work in his own bathroom. It had lived there for 35 years. Doing remodel work, opens up some sheetrock and looks behind there and finds a jar with money of $182,000. Didn't even know it was there. A Chinese bowl that was discovered in, in, a, in another garage sale sold at Sutherland's for $2.2 million. It was a treasure from the Northern Sang Dynasty dating back a thousand years. There was a California family just doing a little gardening in their backyard and discover a jar of gold coins that were valued over $10 million. Who knows what's in your backyard? Who knows what's in your attic? Who knows what's in the garage sale next door? And, and imagine, here's the thing that always intrigues me, is those items were already in the ground, in the house, and nobody knew the value that that property held. I think it's true of you and me. The incredible value that God has placed in us as believers and what we have encapsulated within our hearts, the glory of God in jars of clay, so to say. I think one of the most discouraging thoughts is to get to heaven and then our eyes are truly opened and we begin to see exactly what the Bible's been talking about. Not just heaven itself, but the whole idea of the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is manifest in part here on earth and we miss the very value that is among us. Sometimes we think and we hear stories about what would happen if we got into heaven and God just said, man, this is what it's really like. This is reality. This is truth. And, and, and God is high and lifted up and he rules everywhere and, and do away with lesser things. Don't fixate on the things that will fade away and will be gone tomorrow. And then as if the Lord would say, look at all you could have done had you known that on earth. What an incredible value. So, not only are things valuable that we see that we don't often discover till later, but more importantly, thoughts and ideas are foundational to your very life. I mean, you can find $182,000 stuck in the wall, but if you're a jerk, you're just going to be a rich jerk, right? Right? You may find some kind of Chinese bowl and, and it's worth 2.2 million, but if you can't get along with people, you just really can't get along with people then. See, these things of value that we prize and we look at, all they do is change a certain status, but they don't change your soul. And that's what God is after. And those are the important parts. So let's say that thoughts really do make a difference and thoughts really do have an impact. We can see that there are good thoughts and there's bad thoughts. There's there's perspectives or views or the way you look at life. You know, there can be some really bad ones, some bad ideas. This idea of thinking that peop some people are less than other people. Some people have a less intrinsic value and only are there uh, for your service. And then next thing you know, slavery comes about, one of the most horrible things that could take place. Or then another idea, and it was taught in, in, in colleges in a very, very silent way in Europe. And next thing you know, you discover that people with disabilities and people that aren't white and blue-eyed and blonde hair, they're not worth anything. And next thing you know, you have a holocaust. So thoughts and ideas really, really matter. Let me ask you, what are your prominent thoughts? What, are, what, are, what is it that really gets you up in the morning or keeps you up at night? What are these thoughts? What are these longings? What are these, these things? And so Jesus steps onto the scene 
in a very um, peculiar situation to where God had revealed Himself in creation so powerfully. He had revealed Himself through men like Noah and Adam and Moses and God revealing His very heart. But it seemed like as God would begin to reveal who He really is, man would take it and begin to twist it. And so what God meant to be very meaningful and powerful, man began to twist. And of course, you know, the first or the 400 years before Jesus came to earth, things were really, really bad. They had taken the very knowledge of God and they had twisted it to a bunch of do's and don'ts. And the religious leaders were the ones who were the gatekeepers to the presence of God based on certain do's and don'ts. And most of them, they just invented. And so it really was spiritual malpractice. And it was a horrible situation. Instead of a relationship uh, with God and religion being truly relational and transform, transformational, it actually became something that was a, a dredge. And there are many people in bondage to this kind of thought. And so Jesus comes into the scene with all the prophecies behind him. And there he is born. He, if you look in Matthew, you see his birth. In chapter 3, you see his the forerunner, John the Baptist, and he's proclaiming. Then you see Jesus getting baptized. Then the temptation in chapter 4, in which he's basically uh, being tempted to, to go about becoming the King of kings and Lord of lords in another way. But he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he steps into the scene and, according to Matthew, starts with the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, which Jesus is coming and saying, you have heard your thoughts, your anticipation, the way you've been looking at God is all wrong. Let me explain it to you. And he's starting to talk. You, In fact, he goes in for three chapters and he said, you've heard it said this, but that's not true. This is true. And you've heard this being said, that's not true. And this is true. And so Jesus is basically setting the stage for the kingdom of God, for us to experience it. And he starts off, as you know, with the Beatitudes. This is how you are to be happy, so to say. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that are gentle. Blessed are those that are hungry. Blessed are those that are merciful. Blessed are those that are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And you're going down this line in this list and you're saying, you know what? I don't see very many leaders that act like this. I don't see very many prominent people that consider themselves poor or mourners or thirsty or hungry or gentle or meek. I mean, what is he really saying? And here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, man, and he's got... 5,000 people on this hillside, and he's just talking to them. And they are the rowdiest group. They're the common folk. They're not the religious folk, right? They're the people that just come. They, many of them just walk for miles to hear about Jesus and hear what he has done. I mean, they're rough. I mean, they've got, they've got scars all over them. They don't have many teeth, and that's just the women. I mean, they were just really rough. I mean, they were, they were there, and they, were just, they just come, came to listen. And so he basically says the Beatitudes in a descriptive way and not a prescriptive way. It's not that you try to become like this. It's that, listen, man, you who are humble, you who are without, you're, you're hungry and you're thirsty, meaning you don't have food. Let me tell you what God is about to do with you. What an incredible story. That as they get on the hillside and he begins, he said, listen, you are about to be blessed. You are about to just have your socks knocked off. This is going to change your whole life. And then he goes on and he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so that is the scene in which we see. And first of all, you need to realize that 
this, uh, there is an incredible need for salt and light in this world. Has anybody been paying attention to the world and what's happening? Talk about thoughts and attitudes that kill. We see them on the top shelf now. Crazy things that are happening. Not only do you see it ideologies of politics, but you also see morality that is crazy. I, I don't even know if anybody can list how many different kinds of would-be so-called genders there are today. I mean, have you heard about this? All kinds of names? Just crazy. I just, I'm old-fashioned. I just think there's two kinds of people, right? Just men and women, boys and girls. That's how we're made. But there's people that actually believe these things, that there's a, a changing in genders. There's a changing in morality. There is a changing in the way you look at money. There's a changing of the way you look at God. And I'm telling you, the world needs salt and light. In fact, Jesus says it this way. He makes it very clear. You are the salt of the earth, and it's an imperative. It's not, it's not necessarily an indicative. It is an imperative. That indicatives eventually becomes imperatives, and imperatives are based on the indicatives. In other words, the situation in life demands an action, and the actions are based on a situation. And our situation is incredibly grave. It, it, is, it is dark. It is tasteless. Therefore, there is a need of the salt and all the properties of salt and what light can do for a lost soul. In fact, it gets worse. The reason we have a mission and the reason God came to earth is that men People, humans, are desperately wicked above all things who can know the heart. I mean, we are in a situation. Look, we're not as bad, America, the world, China, Saudi Arabia, any country, Rhode Island is not as bad as it could be because of how dark the earth, earth is. There is a general grace that's on the earth. There is a lot of salt and light that's going on. We'll get to that in a second. But basically, the world is coming to an end. And it's appointed unto man to die once. Then comes judgment, right? So the need for salt and light is more than just having a happy family. It is about an eternity, can I, can I read you a couple verses? Let me just read these verses to see why Jesus was incredibly urgent and why we need to respond with equal urgency. So in Isaiah 66, verse 24, it says, As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of men. It's talking about the prophecy. They will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. This is the Lord speaking. For their worm will not die, their fire will not go out, and they will be a whore to all mankind. So it's a description of, of, of hell. It's a description of the end. And it's spoken of as the lake of fire, as where the worm will not die. It's actually personified, meaning your worm, as if there's a, a, a specific worm that is dedicated to the person in hell that doesn't leave but just eats and eats and eats but never consumes or the fire that burns and burns and burns and never goes out. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Many of those who slept in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal condemnation. So when it says in Hebrews, there's a point that a man wants to die, basically saying once you die, there is judgment and then there's only two places. There's not 
more. There's not reincarnation. For it's appointed unto man to die once, not a serial life and serial marries and serial children and serial deaths. No, it's appointed unto man to die once, then comes judgment. Matthew chapter 13, the very words of Jesus, verse 50 says, And they will be thrown into the blazing fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9.43 And if your hand causes you to fall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. The words of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Jude chapter 7, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and participated and practiced perversion, just as the angels did, and they serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so here's what we know when we're talking about thoughts that change and guide. God is holy. And God is just, and God is all-loving, and God is all-merciful. And because of sin, that rebellion against God that we do, and we inherited, and we have, and this is our situation, God, rich in mercy, sent His Son, while we were yet sinners, to die for us, to rise from the dead again, and to offer salvation free so that no one would have to go to hell. For God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It seems that the most uh, favorite verse in the Bible by most people, and the one you see in the field goals, John 3.16, John 3.16, and everybody likes to quote it, they tend to breathe over and skip over the part that says, you believe in Him, you will not perish. It's assumed that if you don't believe in Him, you will perish. In fact, verse 17 says it, the very next verse says that. So it's a reality. So what does the Lord do about it? Well, He aches. He hurts. What motivated God to come to earth to die for us? He loves. But yet He's still just. We either accept the remedy or we don't. And so the reality is, here's what happens. 6,316 people die every hour. You hear that? 6,000. 316 people die every single hour. 105 people die every single minute throughout the world. Every minute, 105 people die. 31% claim to be Christians, which that's just claiming we don't know. I mean, no one can judge. That's just claiming. That means that every minute, approximately uh, 70 people go to hell every single minute. By the end of this sermon, there will be 2,100 people that enter into hell. It's just a reality. By the end of the day, by the end of the week, by the end of the month, by the end of life. How many have already gone? How many are already going to go? And here, here's the key. Jesus has already, on, on this side of the cross, on this side of the Sermon on the Mount, He has already provided salvation. So the Lord has a plan. His plan is to rescue every single human by the power of His blood, by the power of His resurrection. He is saving all. He had the power is unlimited. The atonement is unlimited in its scope. 
thousands and thousands and billions of worlds could be saved by the blood that Jesus spilt, his life, his resurrection, is that powerful. And so he's already done his part. So how is it applied? Well, it's applied through salt and light. It's applied through you and me. If you've noticed, there is something called the hiddenness of God. God is invisible, right? And oftentimes we think, well, if God is so loving and He cares so much, then why didn't He just write in the sky about His presence and His glory and His future and that Jesus really learned? And Jesus even said it Himself, listen, people won't believe even if they see somebody rise from the dead. God has done it all. He has already provided. And yet what is at stake and what needs to happen is for people like you and me. In fact, let me just say it this way. It stands and rests on you and me to be the salt and light. It does. I mean, God, God's intent, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it is God's intent that through the church, His manifold wisdom would be made known to the principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness. It doesn't say that it's God's intent that He's going to ride in the sky, that He's going to part the sea, that He's going to... No, it's through the church. It is Here's what we believe about missions, is that people's souls are in the balance. So here's what he says. Talking to the people on the hillside, we're common folk. You know, we just had a hard night of fishing, been baking bread, we didn't bring any with us, and we're just standing there on the side of the mill. And he said, listen, blessed are you if you're humble, if you're meek, if you're peacemaker, if you're gentle, if you're just common folk, because you're the salt of the earth. What is salt? Well, salt is pretty powerful. If you look at the Bible and what salt and light represent, salt, there's a covenant of salt in the Old Testament. And it's just talking about, man, salt is so valuable. Um, that's where we get the concept. You know, has anybody ever heard this? I hadn't, heard, I hadn't used this phrase in a while, but, but this man is worth his salt. You ever heard that? Yeah, he's worth his weight in salt. You ever heard that? Or he ain't worth his salt. You know what that means? It's because people used to get paid in salt at times because it's so valuable. Took a bag, go, here you go, here's your money. It's salt, that's awesome. It's going to be great. Where do you get salt? Well, you know, if you, you know, they got mines, they got, they got outcrops that are full of salt, and, and the outside of these outcrops, it, that salt's no good because in those days, that salt, natural salt, does lose its savor when it's contaminated by the weather, by dust, uh, humidity, etc. It's just not salty anymore. But real fresh salt is powerful. It does some incredible things. Let me give you a couple things that salt does. It preserves. It has a preserving ability. You put uh, salt wards off rot, things that decay. You know that. You can preserve meat by rubbing it with a lot of salt, right? That's a pretty cool thing. It has a preserving ability. Um, I believe that we as Christians on earth who are salt, are in a sense preserving society. We have that effect. We are to hold back rot and decay and the presence. You look at the history of countries and you map it out spiritually and you can see that when revival hits a country and the missionaries land and they have a beachhead of the gospel and what happens to that country it literally changes. There's a perseverance. There's, it preserves. It holds back 
the right. Same thing happens when, when someone in a family gets saved. And then it might even be a child. And I had a good friend, his name was Bill, and he, he had a child who got saved and this child changed their life and he surrendered to ministry and it changed not only him but his brother and his sister and his parents. And this has happened to you. One person in a family works as to preserve and it's, it's God's grace by connection. And, and so it's just an average person being the salt of the earth, but it not only preserves, but it also penetrates. It has a penetrating ability. You put, you get a glass of water, you put a little bit of salt in it, and you take a drink, you're going to taste the salt because that little bit of salt salts the whole glass. You can't just separate it. It penetrates. It moves. It's, it's like yeast, but salt changes these things, and we also should be an aggressive substance that wherever we are, things change, and they change very quickly, and they change effectively. It's also purifying. Purifying. In ancient times, newborn babies were washed in salt to clean their bodies. It's a purifying effect, and sometimes you could take salt. At times, they've been used to put in wounds to bring about healing around that area. You see that in Scripture. And so we are to bring about healing. There's a story um, told by President Woodrow Wilson. He tells a story one day. He says, I was in a very common place. I was sitting in a barber's chair when I became aware that a particular personality had entered the room. A man had come quickly, had, had come quietly in upon the same errand that I was on. And he took his chair and he sat in the chair that was right next to me. And every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least of didactic, it wasn't a teaching time, he showed a personal interest in the man who was cutting his hair. Before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service of D.L. Moody, who was in that chair. So you got the President of the United States sitting in a barber chair, and D.L. Moody, who's a famous evangelist at the turn of the century, comes and sits next to him. Listen to what he says. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the whole barber shop. They talked in undertones. They didn't know his name. They didn't even know who he was. But they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I left that place. I should, I should have left the place of worship. My admiration and esteem for Mr. Moody became very deep and intense. Purifying. A purifying effect. So we as common people, meek and humble, etc., being the salt of the earth that God makes us, we enter into a room and there is a purifying effect. There's also a pleasing effect. You've got to understand that there's some food you just don't eat unless you put salt on it, right? Popcorn. Damn, it's hard to eat popcorn without salt. In fact, some of you use too much salt. Just ask your doctor. You do, because you like the taste. It's a pleasing effect. And so we are actually to bring a pleasing effect an aroma, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians, we are to be the aroma of the Lord and that we come about and we are to have a pleasing effect. A story in Greek mythology that is recorded by Dr. Uh, Baderwolf. He was a Presbyterian preacher at the turn of the century, pretty popular. And he tells a story of a mythological goddess who came unseen, you couldn't see her, but was always known by the blessings she left in her pathway. Trees, as she would pass, couldn't see her, but as she would pass, trees... Uh, that were blackened by the forest, the, 
forest fires became vibrant. Leaves began to grow just in her passing. And in her footprints at the brookside, violets would spring up. The stagnant pools became springs of sparkling water and parched fields blossomed with rose. And every hillside in the valley just blushed with new life and beauty when she passed. I mean, when Chris Roller, I mean, when this mythological person passes by, things just begin to bud. I mean, watermelon just pops out, great aromas, and, and birds just begin to flutter. You couldn't see her, but you could see the effect. It's a pleasing ability. It's a fictional story about what we can imagine when goodness just happens all around. However, there's a contrary story. So there's the story... Uh, like a poisonous princess that was infected and her whole life all she did was she ate poison was fed poison and finally she was given I don't know if you know this mythological story but she was given to another king and the other king thought she was the prize of all prize but actually she was the curse and so when butterflies would come around her they would just turn black and drop dead and when someone would give her a rose she'd pull it to herself and the petals would begin to fall and they would decay before they hit the ground and whoever she touched would die as though there's two kinds of people as these mythological characters represent pleasing or killing you being the salt of the earth have an obligation to truly be the salt of the earth but also salt has a poisoning ability. You know that there have been many armies that went through a country and after they finished, they poured salt everywhere and they destroyed the land for decades. Has a poisoning. Every, every, boy, every man here who used to be a boy knows what salt does to a slug, right? Case in point, salt can do that. Salt can arrest something from growing. And that's what Christians can do in this same sense is that when our presence is around, you, 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 this may have happened to you, to where all of a sudden you go into a room and all of a sudden people get quiet, and they're just like, ah, oh, we don't need to be talking about that. You, you kill certain things that need to be killed. Not necessarily by your words, but just by your presence. There's something that must stop. And so we have that ability. We also have an ability, what salt does is salt promotes. It promotes thirst. And so we in our presence, and when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's really also talking about, one of the other characteristics is that when you are around people, people should desire and know God more. But oftentimes Christians adopt other thoughts and ideas in their minds. And we want to promote other things instead of the Lord. And I just want to ask you and ask myself, when we leave a room, wherever we are, and it might be out in the world, it might be with clubs, it might be with different activities, it might be at work, it might be with family. When we leave, are people wanting to be um, prettier because they've been around us? More handsome, stronger, smarter, wealthier, more, uh, more creative? Are they wanting to be funny? Are they, I mean, what does our presence leave? What kind of desire do we leave in the hearts of people? And I'm telling you, as the salt of the earth, we should be the kinds of people that when we leave a room, people go, you know what, I think I want to be, I think I want to start reading Scripture a little more. I mean, maybe, or maybe I could go to church, or maybe I'll pray, who knows, maybe I'll pray on the way home today. 
I mean, are we leaving that? Because it says, the Bible says, we are the salt of the earth. And it's not saying you need to try to become the salt of the earth. It literally is saying you are the salt of the earth. Because regeneration, being born again, being infused by the Holy Spirit, having the Word of God, being in a fellowship, fires us up. It's like we want to go to the, right in the face of Satan and slap him and say, look out, here we come. The gates of hell are not going to prevail. We are the salt of the earth. That's a big deal. And then he says, you are the light. The two statements rest upon two prepositions or presuppositions. That is, the world is contaminated with darkness and the world cannot save itself. And so here we are. We're to be the light. Let me read you a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 says this, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. In other words, there was darkness until Jesus came, and there is a light. Have you ever been, you ever been in darkness? I remember I was, I was uh, scuba diving one time, and we were down by the dam at, at uh, Lake Whitney. And it was deep, and it was, we decided to dive at night. And I'm the only guy that doesn't have a light. And so I'm hanging on to this guy's BC, and we're going down. And it was cool because he had a light, and visibility is incredible. I mean, in, at Lake Whitney, by the dam, I mean, it's at least five foot. So you're going down, and, and we're looking at things, and there's big things and scary things, and you're just looking around. All of a sudden, I, I let go of him to grab something I have, and he's gone. I don't know where. I can't see his light. I can't see anything, and it's, it's as black as black can be. And, and then there are times where you actually don't know which way's up and which way's down. It's a, it's a type of vertigo when you're deep underwater. And you're like, man, I have no idea what to do. And I thought I'd let some bubbles out, and I found out which way was up, and I got out of there. I mean, luckily, I got out alive, and I wasn't, wasn't too scared, but scared. I'm not too scared. I'm not too scared. And I made it. But imagine, imagine... I didn't know which way. I mean, how valuable is light at that moment? And this is spiritually speaking. There are those, listen, don't criticize people for not knowing the light. Don't criticize people for acting like they're lost because they're lost. Don't, don't judge sinners for acting like sinners. That's just, that's who I am. That's who we are. But when you come to know the light, then we know. Jesus says, you are the light. You are the light. You are the light of the earth. And what do we do with it? You don't hide it. You don't put it under a bushel. You let it shine. Now, here's where we have a decision. Are we going to let our light shine? Or are we not? Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 says, For He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. So, so darkness has a dominating effect. Darkness doesn't want you to see the light. He says, for you've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and you've been transformed to the kingdom of His light, His beloved Son. John chapter 1, verse 5 says, light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not extinguish it or put it out. It can't be put out. 
1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be there in a few weeks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, common people on the hillside. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who has called you out of darkness into what? That's right. John 17, 12. They make night into day, saying, this light is near in the presence of darkness. John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So God is light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the earth. Darkness could not extinguish it. He rose from the dead, and He places that light inside of each and every one of us to be a guide to those that are under the dominion of darkness. So God is not primarily changing the world through programs, through strategies, but God is changing the world through you and through me. As we gather together, then we are to strategize and to plan. Listen, uh, church is not that, uh, just speaking very secularly, Church is not that attractive, which is singing songs, having programs. I mean, that's, that's cool, but that's not what's attractive. What's attractive is the transformation power that you've experienced. And when you shine the light and you are the salt in a dark world, you make people thirsty. You begin to purify. You begin to be a guide out of the dominion of darkness. It rests on you and me to be the light. And as we come together, we begin to strategize with even greater light and greater direction so that more people can be rescued. I think, I think you know this. I've given my whole life to this. Not because you all pay me to be your preacher. I would do this if I was your painter or your pool cleaner. That's what I would do. Or I was, if I was your plumber, I would do this. Just like most of you, if not all of you do. It's not about occupation. It's about passion. It's about what God has actually done for you, in you, and through you, and that's how we change the world. I mean, you may be here today, and you may say, you know what? I, I don't know where I stand in all this. And know this, that the Lord Jesus came for you. He came to be the light for you, and you have seen it in other people. You have seen it as the light shines from the Word of God, and you need to, you must. You have no other option but to respond to the light. This will save your life for all eternity. Thank you again for listening to audio from Pastor Mac Roller at Glamina's Baptist Church. For previous sermons and more information, please check out our website at gmbc.org. 